Well, as Rebecca uh, said this morning, for the next several weeks, our worship and specifically the sermons will focus on Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Um, the worship planners come to Ephesians without any agenda, uh, if that's possible in these postmodern times. Um, it just so happens that the lectionary walks us through the epistle to the Ephesians this year. And so we decided to take advantage of that continuity and center our preaching around it. And so, so far as we know, at this point, the only thing that really connects these next several weeks' worth of services is the fact that we're going to be using Ephesians as our preaching center. Well, following on the heels of two um, somewhat hectic weeks, I confess to checking my computer uh, for any old sermons on Ephesians 1. Um, I was looking for something that maybe I could just kind of touch up a little bit and use a second time. But alas, I found none, which was, I have to confess, a bit of a bummer. Um, also a bit of a surprise. I mean, it surprised me that in my almost 11 years at East Chestnut Street, I hadn't preached a sermon on Ephesians 1. Or if I did, I didn't save it in my computer, which may say something in and of itself. Um, what that means, I don't know. Um, and in any event, we're going to be making up for it in the weeks to come. A few bits of information uh, tentatively offered by way of context setting. The authorship of this letter is debated with the tradition voting for Paul and um, more modern scholarship, of course, debating that tradition. The debate centers on matters of language and theology. The language that is used in this letter does not match well with language that is used in other epistles and in particular those letters which are, according to most scholars, unquestionably written by Paul, Galatians, 1 Corinthians, 1 Thessalonians, Philippians. The theology is reminiscent of that that is found in Colossians, another letter whose authorship is disputed in scholarly circles. In the end, it seems to me, um, the question of authorship is interesting, but not necessarily all that useful to our purposes um, this morning. For my part, and for the sake of simplicity, I will simply assume Pauline authorship. It's just a whole lot more convenient to just keep saying Paul than it is to say the author of Ephesians. Um, so I'll assume that at least on the Sundays that I'll preach and Pastor Sue can fend for herself. <laughs> Perhaps we'll even stir up a little debate over the next few weeks. That would be sweet. Anyways, um, what is more widely agreed upon, at least among the sources that I checked, um, is that the letter to the Ephesians was not written to a specific congregation or community. While the NRSV chooses to go with a version of verse 1 of chapter 1, which addresses the saints who are in Ephesus, it also notes that other ancient manuscripts don't include those words in Ephesus. Instead, they read, to the saints who are also faithful in Christ Jesus. Um, there's not much in the letter to indicate that Paul knew his audience or had information about their community or communities and the dy dynamics of those communities. The letter is instead more general than that, offering a broader word which could be applicable to any Gentile Christian community in what was then known as Asia Minor. Of the several commentators I consulted, all agreed that the letter could be described as being in the form of a sermon, one which could well have traveled from community to community to community. 
As one commentator writes, Ephesians should be read with attention not only to the ways it might influence an audience both emotionally and intellectually, but to the ways it uses language to captivate and transform the imagination. There's a lot of high and lofty language in this letter, language which serves to pull us beyond the mundane, toward the cosmic, and perhaps even to the heavenly. The letter can be divided into two pieces. Uh, the first, chapters 1 to 3, comes in the form of theological instruction. In these chapters, Paul sets the stage for the rest of the letter by establishing the fact of who we are in Christ Jesus. So that phrase, as Dorcas has um, pointed out, that phrase, in Christ, or its equivalent, is all over this section that we read today, but it's also uh, all over subsequent chapters. Paul describes what has already been done for and to us in Christ, events which happened, Paul says, before the beginning of time, events which continue to unfold as God's redemption is more fully made known. Chapters 4 to 6 comprise the second part of the letter and take the form of more specific instruction, ethical instruction. So having described just who his audience is in Christ Jesus, Paul describes what they and their community or communities ought to be, how they ought to be because of who they are in Christ. So while we can't know exactly whom Paul had in mind, if anybody, when composing this letter in sermon form, I think it would be fair to recall just a little bit about we, uh, what we learned um, during, last fall during our um, Living Faithfully in the Empire series. The communities which received this letter, like the community in Colossae, uh, were subjects of the Roman Empire. That fact defined them in very real and significant ways. The empire, you may recall, declared in no uncertain terms that it was the lord of the known world. Caesar was worshipped as a god. The empire was understood to be the source of peace and prosperity, the sole power standing against chaos, the barbarians, um, the protector of the faithful, the punisher of the disobedient. The image of Caesar was everywhere, from coins to statues to graffiti on the walls. The signs and symbols, the facts of the empire were so common and so omnipresent as to become part of the background, as accepted and even taken for granted as the earth underfoot or the air that people breathed. And yet at a moment's notice, the empire could assert itself and so reinforce its claims to loyalty and allegiance, rewarding its friends and punishing and making examples of its enemies. One of the claims that Paul makes in the early chapters of this sermon letter is that there is a cosmic conflict happening between the God who has saved us in Christ Jesus and the powers of this world. That conflict is already finished, and God has already won in Christ, but the powers have not yet conceded. Paul's purpose in creating the church is, in part, to reveal to the powers and authorities of this world and in the heavenly places the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so as important and wonderful as our individual salvation may be, as important and wonderful as the salvation of our community may be, God's purposes are higher even than that. The church is part of God's plan to bring all things in heaven and on earth under the lordship of Jesus Christ. 
Our text for this morning is one great big doxology, an offering of praise and blessing to the glory of God. And in the Greek, I understand, <laughs> it is one long sentence, one long run-on sentence, a breathless outpouring of high-flown speech intended both to praise the God whose salvation is being sung and to draw the audience into an attitude of exaltation and worship. As one commentator notes, modern readers may find themselves lost in the rarefied atmosphere of divine praise and adoration, especially when the book is read aloud. By evoking the experience of worship, the writer elevates the audience into a new setting from which it may be possible both to glimpse the mystery of God's plan for the fullness of time and begin to realize the dimensions of life in Christ. Renewed imagination leads to transformed relationships. Renewed imagination leads to transformed relationships. We are all members of the body of Christ, the church, as a result of something done before time itself began. Before the foundation of the world, Paul writes, God chose us in Christ to become holy and blameless in love. God decided long ago, before time began, to adopt us as God's own children through Jesus Christ. Before we even knew about it, before we were even capable of knowing about it, before we were even the smallest gleam in the eyes of our parents, before our parents were even the smallest gleams in the eyes of their parents, before all of that, we were already chosen, already blessed, already called to be members of Christ's body, members of the community of blameless love and holy life. We have been redeemed. We've been forgiven. We've had the very grace of God lavished upon us. These things have already happened. And they are still being revealed to us and through us. And our redemption, planned before the beginning of the world, our salvation is just the beginning. It's only a part of the fullness of God's wisdom, a part of God's planned intention to gather up all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. The Jews... Paul's people were the first to receive their inheritance, but that was only part of God's plan. And so the Gentiles, those once far away, us, also received an inheritance. We too were adopted into the community of the redeemed. The Gentiles heard the word of truth and believed that word and were given the Holy Spirit as a seal of that belief. And so God's plan continues as the church becomes an instrument to bring about the salvation of the world, the overcoming of all powers and authorities resisting the dominion of God, and so gathering all things in heaven and on earth unto Christ. And so we are called to live for the praise of God's glory, Paul says. To live to the praise of God's glory. To live, in other words, as if everything that Paul says is true. To understand ourselves as redeemed people gathered by God into a new way of being, a way that is no longer subject to the powers and principalities, the false gods and human tyrants, the pretenders and those who demand that we offer ourselves and our children to them and their rule, to understand ourselves as a redeemed people called into life in Christ, children of God, part of God's intention to redeem the world, called to live in ways which reveal that intention, to live for the praise of God's glory. And here we are, only 14 verses into this letter, and already I feel way out of my depth. 
stretch beyond myself and my limited vision, my limited ability to see and to understand just what God is up to in the world. My faith is often myopic, focused on what is right in front of me, on my community, and my relationships, my own attempts at being faithful. My vision is too often taken up with the small details, the, the little steps, the everyday negotiations and struggles that come with following Jesus in this time and in this place. Frankly, I think that limited, maybe focused is, is a better, friendlier word for it. Um, perhaps that um, focused vision serves me well because our faithfulness is measured in those very details, those mundane challenges, those individual and communal relationships which comprise life at East Chestnut Street Mennonite Church and in the broader church of which we are a part. Our community is the substance of those smaller details, a, a true example of the whole being greater than the sum of the parts. We attend to the little things, the details of our congregational life and mission. We put lots of time and energy into that attending, and we do so believing that it is our calling as followers of Jesus. And I believe we're right to do that. But today, Paul calls us to take another look around, to turn our attention away from the small, the everyday, the local, the individual, and to catch sight of the much, much bigger picture. Like floating in space and seeing the earth as that big blue ball it is when seen from the right perspective, Paul calls us to step back and see the immensity of God's saving purposes, but not in order, not in order to humble us or to cause us to dismiss the value of all those details of life together in Christ. Rather, rather Paul lifts us up to that heavenly height in order to reveal to us that those details of life together in Christ are themselves part of something beyond our imagining, the mystery of God's redeeming work in the world, a part of God's gathering of everything into his proper relationship to Christ. The details matter more than we know, Paul tells us. It is because of this immense mystery that we engage in faithful living every day, living lives which are themselves for the praise of God's glory. We are part of the very saving of the universe. And so here we are, out of our depth, or at least out of my depth, perhaps gasping a bit at the thinness of the air, awestruck by the thinness of what separates us in this moment from grasping the fullness of God's intention. Or maybe it's like standing on a mountaintop with the light of the sun shining full upon us and feeling blessed and dazzled all at once. Or, or maybe it's like imagining ourselves on the deck of the starship Enterprise just as it leaps into warp speed. That giddy and scary sense of being beyond gravity's reach and moving as fast as the light. Or maybe you want to choose another image, your own image. Bending, bending your imagination temporarily to get hold of what Paul is telling us, that we are part of something unlike anything else in time or eternity, not because of anything that we have done, but by the plan of God who chose us long before we were born and did so to bring about the redeeming of everything in heaven and on earth. Think on this in this coming week. Every once in a while, in the midst of your attending to the day-to-day -day work of discipleship, every once in a while, lift up your eyes and recall this cosmic vision that Paul offers us, 
this song of praise to God, this vision of the scope of salvation. Every once in a while, prick up your ears and listen to the songs of angels, the voices of the stars, the sounds of trees clapping their hands and mountains declaring the glory of the Lord. This week, at least once a day, recall this breathless and high-flown exclamation of praise to the Lord. And then, in that moment, remember your place in that exclamation. And then live, then live for the praise of God's glory. Blessed be the Father, God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, just as he chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless before him in love. He destined us for adoption as his children through Jesus Christ according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he freely bestowed on us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace that he lavished upon us with all wisdom and insight. He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In Christ we have also obtained an inheritance, having been destined according to the purpose of him who accomplishes all things according to his counsel and will, so that we, who were the first to set our hope on Christ, might live for the praise of his glory in him, you also, that's us. When we heard the word of truth, the gospel of our salvation, and believed in him, we were marked with the seal of the promised Holy Spirit. This is the pledge of our inheritance toward redemption as God's own people, to the praise of God's glory. Amen and amen.